Please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Luke chapter 9. As we come before God's Word and spend the next few minutes um, listening to Him, let's um, ask for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So, Father, speak. Help us to listen. Help us to believe the truth that we just sang, that your word guides us to Christ. For it is there that he speaks. Speak, O Lord. We are listening. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I said it's hard to believe we're on week 39. Here we are, amazingly, on week 40 in Luke. Uh, We'll go for a few more weeks, uh, then probably uh, move into something else for a break. Uh, We'll probably be in the Psalms for our annual uh, summer psalm series. But uh, right now, we're finishing up uh, a part of Luke before Jesus, as we see soon, sets his face um, to Jerusalem. What's your perspective? Um, I think we're asked that question quite a bit. Uh, We also ask that question of others. Um, We might mean something like this. I'd I'd like to hear your opinion on an issue. How do you see things? In other words, when someone asks or we ask, what's your perspective? I think we're asking, what's your viewpoint? What's your standpoint? What's your point of view? What's your outlook on this, that, or the other? Uh, Perspective is determined, of course, by location, where you stand. And perspective is determined by lens, the lens through which you see things. Now, the truth of a thing isn't changed by perspective. However, perspective certainly affects response to the truth. Well, what's Luke up to in his gospel? Well, we know from the very first few verses, verse four in particular, uh, Luke is writing to provide certainty and assurance. Uh, Luke is, is writing to provide a perspective on Jesus that will provide certainty and assurance about who he is and what he came to do and as he unfolds in his second volume, Acts, what Jesus by his spirit is continuing to do and teach. Well, where's Luke taken us thus far? Um, turn back with me to chapter eight uh, and listen to verse one of chapter eight. Uh, soon afterward, uh, that is, soon afterward, he, that is Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus is going about proclaiming good news and an interesting expression. He's bringing good news. He's bringing himself and what he's doing as he shows mercy over and over again. Now, Luke has been weaving some themes throughout his um, gospel. Thus far, we see a theme of Jesus praying. And lately, the past few weeks, we've seen an interesting theme. 
of the continuing and ongoing failure of the disciples. Their failure to understand Jesus and his ministry. Now, people are arguing, is scripture true? Is Jesus real? Is the gospel really good news? Can you believe the Bible? What kind of religion would speak in its book about the failure of some of its foundational figures, the apostles? I mean, really, for me, and I hope for you, the fact that it's in the scriptures helps prove that this is real. It's true. It's authentic. They failed because guess what? They failed. They were weak. They were afraid. I mean, just that very fact should encourage us. Are we weak? Are we afraid? Do we fail? Yes. But as we heard last week, how long does Jesus bear with that faithless and twisted generation? He bears with us until we're home. Luke presents several areas in which the disciples are not yet who they one day will be when it comes to their understanding of Jesus, their understanding of themselves, one another, and their understanding of others. And today's text is a textbook case of their failure to understand, a failure seen in several perspectives. Uh, Join with me as I read Chapter 9, beginning in the second half of verse 43 on through verse 50. But when they were all marveling at everything he, that, is, that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, as it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Several perspectives, I believe, are in our text. One hidden, two wrong, and within the context of all of Scripture, one revealed. Let's look first at what I'm calling the hidden perspective. The hidden perspective. Uh, We see that verse 43 through verse 45 there. It affects their view of, of Jesus. Um. Look at the beginning of verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And and Luke continues, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing. Uh, People are astonished 
People are wondering, they're amazed, they're marveling. And then there's this contrast. Luke goes, as he did the week before, from the top of the mountain to the suffering in the valley below of the Father and the Son. And and here's the contrast between marveling, astonishment, wonder, and the sober words of Jesus. Listen to this expression. Let these words sink into your ears. Let these words sink into your ears. It's the only place in Scripture you're going to see this. Uh, Earlier, in in the parable of the sower, remember, uh, he who has ears, let him hear. Uh, This just went up a notch. Let these words sink into your ears. Let them sink to your heart. I often remind the kids, you know, um, you got to pay attention to the teacher. This is how I survived school. You know, the, the review before the exam. Remember, I had a great history teacher in high school who always sort of gave us hints as to what questions were going to be on the test. You know, he, he would indicate it. You know, Jesus bolds it, italics, um, highlights it. This has got to be one of the bigger highlights. Jesus is saying, pay attention. Stop what you're doing. Let these words sink into your ears. And what does he say? The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Well, earlier in verses 21 and 22, he spoke of the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Here, there's this emphasis The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. There's a play on things. The Son of Man into the hands of men. Betrayal. Wait a minute. These people have just seen Jesus do remarkable things. Not only the crowd, but the disciples themselves. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be delivered. What is that expression? This does not compute. This does not make sense. Um, This is grinding of the gears. They, they, we, we read they, they didn't understand. And so this hidden perspective is first of all, they hid it from themselves. They didn't understand what he was saying. See, they had constructed a box about who the Messiah was going to be. And the Messiah they had in mind, and I know this sounds trivial and trite, but it's the truth. They expected the Messiah to deliver them politically, militarily, and societally from the oppression of the Roman rule. They ex- that was the box into which their Messiah fit. And Jesus already is not fitting in the box they have constructed. Because what Jesus is saying about who he is and what's going to happen to him is outside the box. In reading through a commentary or two, uh, 
one commentator, I believe it was J.C. Ryle, quoted, and he didn't even know who it was. He called him an old divine. So my guess is it's somebody in the 1600s said this, but we don't know. He said this about the disciples at the time. The throne of David did so fill their eyes that they could not see the cross. The throne of David so filled their eyes that they could not see the cross. This morning, a, uh, I was turning right off of Fairfield onto Taylor, and the sun was shining, and for a brief second, I saw a woman walking her dogs across, not in the crosswalk, and had not seen her in a flash, I would probably run into her and her dogs, and she was wearing this, this, um, this parka. She didn't see me. She couldn't have seen me. Now she was walking outside the crosswalk, but that's beside the point. The driver's always responsible, right? She couldn't see me. Her peripheral vision wouldn't allow it. She wasn't paying attention. Jesus has just said, guys, pay attention to what I'm about to say. And they're having a hard time paying attention. They couldn't see. They didn't want to believe that salvation to whom of which this, the, the Messiah was bringing, he was bringing life. How could it be via his betrayal, via his death? Does not make sense. So it's a hidden perspective. They hid it from themselves, but God hid it from them also because we read these words. And it was concealed from them so that they may, may not, so that they might not perceive it. Wow. They hid it and God hid it. They, they, it was intentional. It was on purpose. Uh, they couldn't perceive yet. But we gave the game away, right? We read Luke 24. God or Jesus opened their minds to understand. My friends, here is a good example of divine sovereignty and man's responsibility. Mysterious it is, hard to believe it is, but scripture speaks both of God's sovereignty, his rule, his orchestration of all things, but also man's responsibility. They should have been able to figure it out, right? They sort of chose not to believe that this is the kind of Messiah that Jesus is, but it was concealed for them. Because Luke and all the gospel writers show this progression of a growing understanding of the disciples. It's kind of like for all of us, isn't it? There's a progression. We can look back at our lives and, man, I didn't understand that, but, but now I do. Maybe it's due to hard work. Maybe it's due to just study. But most of the time, most all the time when it's spiritually related, it's God who's opened our eyes. It's God who's given us understanding. And that sort of undercuts pride, doesn't it? And it's like... Uh, Miracle grow for humility. God shows us that. 
They weren't able to understand, and honestly, they didn't want to understand. Uh, How many of y'all think that if you don't think about something, it goes away? How many of you think if you avoid something long enough, it'll just give up? We have to face things. They're going to have to face things. Well, not only is there a perspective here in our text that's hidden from the disciples, but they themselves possess wrong perspectives. We see that in verses 46 through 50, uh, both of which are symptoms of their failure to understand Jesus. If they understood Jesus, then you wouldn't have had these two wrong perspectives. Well, what are they wrong about? They're wrong about their view of one another. Uh, They're wrong about greatness. What is greatness? Look at this, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was greatest. Now, maybe it's because only three were up on the mount with Jesus at the transfiguration. Uh, Maybe those guys were saying to themselves, to the other nine, hey, the father begged you guys. You couldn't do it. Maybe if he'd have begged us, we could have done it. Uh, We might be the greatest. I mean, was it Peter? Was it James? Was it John? We don't know. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. You can almost imagine 12 voices saying, I'm the greatest. I mean, Kentucky has a little bit of history, right? Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, Louisville, the greatest. He believed he was the greatest. Now, maybe for a time, the greatest boxer. But I think he took that to mean that he's the greatest. And these disciples have this wrong view of who they are because of a wrong view of Jesus. They're thinking according to the world. They're no different from the world. An insatiable desire for prestige, for praise, for position, for prominence, for power. They're utterly lacking self-awareness. And what does Jesus do? He knows the reasoning of their hearts and he gives them an object lesson. It's almost a show and tell lesson. He brings in a child. And he's saying, you see this child who's ignored unimportant, inconsequential. The literature of the day in Jewish circles were a child really didn't exist until age 12. And then you could start teaching them Torah. There were a number of places where it was considered to be the waste of time for a man to do this, to do that, and to spend time with a child. The child really was least, unimportant, ignored, no significance. Their presence, they were to barely be seen and certainly not to be heard. But Jesus, in his flipping the values of the world, in his bringing down the upside down values of the kingdom of God, is saying, this little child on the one hand, is great because they're human being. 
sins. Jesus is making the point uh, that the least is, uh, is the one who's great. The least is this child and this child is great and therefore everyone in one sense is great. Made in the image of God to be treated with dignity and respect and compassion and care. But he also says this, that if you receive a child, you're receiving me. Because guess what? Right now, I'm being ignored by the religious leaders or they're getting mad at me. And, and I'm going to be considered unimportant and inconsequential and of no significance If you receive this child, it's like you're receiving me. And if you're receiving me, you're receiving the father. Because as I was studying this and praying through this and pouring over this, it's starting to dawn on me. You want to know how we view God? It's the way we treat one another. It's the way we treat the least among us, the lost among us, the inconsequential, the unimportant. Jesus is turning greatness on its head. Mark emphasizes that greatness is the one who serves. It's not really the point here with Luke. Jesus is giving some object lessons All humans are great on the one hand, but also how you treat this little one that cannot benefit you is reflective of how you treat me. And how you treat me is reflective of how you view the father. So they've got a wrong perspective on greatness. They also believe it or not, have a wrong perspective on ministry. Not only do they have a wrong view, jockeying for position amongst themselves that that I'm the first among equals, but they're also confused about ministry, their view of others, uh, their selfishness, their narrowness, and their exclusiveness is being shown when we hear this. John answered, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Okay, maybe the disciples realized, okay, we're wrong here with this greatness thing. Okay, Jesus, you caught us. But hey, we're not wrong here. You know, like if I'm caught here, let me point out the good I do. And look at us, Jesus, we're doing good right now because we told this guy we don't know who was casting out demons in your name, we we told him to stop. They've got the wrong view. Jesus presents the right view. Uh, He says no to a territorial spirit, no to protecting turf, yes to the advancement of the kingdom of God. And notice, it's amazing, we tried to stop him, right? We tried to stop him and they couldn't. This is kind of a good failure, right? Earlier, the father begged them to heal his son, begged them, and they couldn't. Jesus could and did. This this unnamed man 
is doing what they should have done and should have been able to do. They tried to stop him. They, 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 they couldn't stop him. Um, God's way and welcome is greater than man's way and welcome. There are so many lessons that can be drawn out. You know, do, do we want to promote grace and peace? Absolutely. But you know what's way more important than promoting this church? It's tr- promoting all of God's work in all corners of the earth. I remember years ago, I was living in a house with um, eight other naval officers and a Marine, an officer in the Marine Corps. And one of my housemates was being involved in a ministry um, in, a, in a rough neighborhood of Norfolk, Virginia. And he said, you know, it's really tough to you pray for God to bless this other ministry. And then when God does bless this other ministry, you're jealous, you're envious. That's a real test, isn't it? Jesus is saying, guys, you're with me and I'm for you. But guess what? The kingdom of God is going to be way bigger than the 12 of you. It's a good thing that he was doing this in my name. Don't stop him. So, so the disciples here have two wrong perspectives on greatness and on ministry. So the question I have to ask myself and I have to ask all of us, are we open to correction? Are we open to being told we're wrong? Do I, if something is pointed out in my life, get defensive? Sadly, I have. But here we are in God's word. And what does God's word do but soften our hearts and enable us to receive correction? A few weeks ago, I made a comment to someone That night, I woke up, couldn't sleep. I knew what I had done. The next day, I reached out to that person. I said, when I said this, I was wrong. It was an attempt probably to put you down and build me up. Will you forgive me? And you know what I heard? I forgive you. Amazing. How did that happen? God was kind and merciful to me in my flesh, on my own. Why would I ever admit I was wrong? The disciples have two wrong perspectives and Jesus tells them they're wrong. How do you respond when Jesus, through his word and by his spirit, says you are wrong? As I read through Proverbs, it's the wise person that receives instruction. It's the wise person 
that wants to grow and change. The hardest thing for me is it's not God directly, you know, sending a bolt of lightning to me. It's God through people. And that really requires humility. And that is a gift of the Lord. It's not something I think any of us could come up with ourselves. So there's a hidden perspective. There's a couple of wrong perspectives. Those are presented directly, but indirectly, our text points to a revealed perspective. The revealed perspective of Scripture. It's it's revealed by Jesus himself to his disciples, right? Luke 24, verse 45. He opened their mind to understand. He opened their mind to understand. Are we to be faithful to share Jesus with others, family, co-workers, others, in, 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 in kindness and graciousness and directness and boldness and gentleness? Yes. But none of us can persuade. None of us have the ability to get someone to see what they cannot see. That's the Lord. He opened their minds to understand. And this revealed perspective, we see also it's, it's revealed by Scripture and the Holy Spirit to us. Believe it or not, we're in a better place than the apostles. You say, I want to be Peter, James, John. I want to be Matthew. I want to be Paul. My friends, we... We've got the completed revelation, Genesis to Revelation. We're amazing, right? We're, it's been revealed to us. That hymn says, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found the Lord. No, I was found of him. Here's the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit to open hearts, open minds, open ears, open eyes. None of us have the capability to open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, open our eyes. We don't achieve openness. We receive openness. Perspective is based on location and lens. Perspective affects, perspective determines how we view God, how we view one another in the church, how we view others outside the church. And it's been said a few times very simply, and it's true. The gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. Why? Because in the gospel, we're in a new location. We're in Christ. Paul says that over and over again. Where are you? You're in Christ. And you're seeing things now through a different lens because you have the new eyes of a new heart. The gospel changes everything, changes your location and your lens. 
So as we wrap this up, I want us to recognize that a Christian wears bifocals. A Christian wears bifocal glasses in order to keep two perspectives in view, one up high and one down low. The perspective of the Christian has got to be up high, right? Heaven, glory, eternity, right? Paul in in Ephesians 2, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We have the perspective of a horizon from beginning to end by faith in Christ seated in the heavenlies. But here, here the emphasis on the bifocal lens is the perspective of the Christian down low. What am I talking about? The cross, suffering, this life. Jesus is bringing the news that he is going to be delivered over. He's gonna suffer. He's gonna die. Jesus is bringing the down low perspective. He's starting to draw everything to the cross. I think this is probably my earliest memory. Was I two years old? Maybe three years old? I don't know, four probably. And here's what I remember. My grandfather when I stayed with my grandparents, every night he would sing to me. And this is something he sang to me every night. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. I don't think my grandfather could sing real well, but that chorus, that refrain was burned into me at a very young age. And little did I know that that refrain was written in 1885 by a gentleman named Ralph Erskine Hudson, and it's based on the lyrics of Isaac Watts' 1707 hymn, Alas, And did my Savior bleed that we will sing most likely on Good Friday, as we always do? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. My friends, in a moment, we are going to observe, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? We get the blessing of life because Jesus got the curse of suffering and death in our place and on our behalf. The Lord's Supper doesn't just remind us to taste and see. The Lord's Supper reminds us to listen to Jesus. Listen to him. Why? Because he has the words of eternal life. Jesus asked Peter, but he asked all of us, do you want to go? 
You know, there's some hard sayings, right? I'm going to die, right? The only way you live is if I die. You want to go? May, may Peter's answer be all of our answers. Lord, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Father, we thank you that you are patient with your people. We thank you, Father, that you are pleased in your good timing to reveal what was once hidden. Father, you are always pleased to correct our wrong perspectives. Oh God, help me, help us, help all of us to be willing to be corrected. And oh Father, would you continue to reveal to us all that we are and all that we have in Christ. Father, thank you for giving us new eyes to see his grace and to see his glory. Be pleased, Father, to help us become more like him. For we pray in his name. Amen.